Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hello, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. I have with me William Fortune. William is a poet. He is a former stuntman. He is a, I believe I want to say the right word, is a licensed clown. Um, he is an author, and he is a uh, fellow resident uh, of New Jersey by birth, I believe. And so I want to say welcome, William, to the Allies Podcast. Carmen, thank you very much for having me on board. It's, it's a privilege and an honor to be here. William, I want to do something a little bit different here. I want to talk about a poem called Too Much to Live For. Mm. It's on your website. Yes. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about that poem. Sure. If you find my lifeless body hanging from a tree, know that I have too much to live for. I am not a fruit that easily grows on trees, yet too many trees have fruit that looks like me, and too many mamas sobbing hard on their knees. Knowing that their baby had so much to live for, Jemima is not my aunt. Ben is not my uncle. If you were too busy fighting to keep your belly full, that you have no time to fight to keep my lungs full, I have to let you go, because I have too much to live for. There is nothing about my blackness that I need to hide. So you best believe if I'm hanging, it was not suicide. So hear what I'm saying, because I say it with pride. I have too much to live for. So that's me, Italian-American, white guy, reading your poem. <laughs> Tell me what put you in the mindset to write something like that, because it is powerful. And I intentionally read it because I want you to read it and I want to hear the difference. <laughs> so tell me what got you to write too much to live for. The, what got me to write that? Well, first of all, let me just say it has power coming in, coming forth in your words as well. Uh, I, it moved me to hear you speak that. What encouraged me, what drove me to write that, I, it was like a spirit moving through me that asked me to write that poem, uh, is there was, there was the account of five people who had been found hanging and it was said that they were all suicides. It turns out the two of the five or two of the four, the fifth one is still unverified, were suicides, but the others were not. And it's the perpetuation of the whole lynchings of black uh, men, black people that starts has been prevailing since the riots and the protests have begun. Um, they have coming back and they're being seen as happening again. And when in reality, they never stopped happening. Uh, and mm. that to me is, um, is powerful. And I, as a poet, as an artist, I felt that I needed to use my art as activism to speak words that would uh, resonate with people, not just black people, but all people, uh, and in a way that would encourage them to start looking differently 
at what we accept and what we tolerate. Well, th that's what got me. So, you know, everyone has their own definition of art. And for me, art is the distillation of life. So if you do, if, if you create a piece of art that allows you to concentrate the emotion and the, the thoughtfulness that happens in life that passes you by, but you focus this, this poem pulls in so much of what we're seeing today, a week ago, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So if you can, uh, read me the poem too much to live for, because I really do want to hear it in your words. Okay. Too much to live for. If you find my lifeless body hanging from a tree, know that I have too much to live for. I am not a fruit that easily grows on trees, yet too many trees have fruit that looks like me, and too many mamas sobbing hard on their knees, knowing that their baby had so much to live for. Jemima is not my aunt. Ben is not my uncle. If you are too busy fighting to keep your belly full, that you have no time to fight to keep my lungs full, I have to let you go. Because I have too much to live for. There is nothing about my blackness that I need to hide. So you best believe if I'm hanging, it was not suicide. So hear what I'm saying, because I say it with pride. I have too much to live for. Now, if you, if you think about a copy of a copy, <laughs> the way that I read it was, um, it was accurate. I, I read every word. Mm -hmm. I did not have the gravitas or the depth of emotion. I didn't have an understanding of which word to hit. And frankly, the, the richness of your voice and the emotion that sits behind that makes it a very different poem. Mm. That's experience. So I go back to if, if art is the distillation of life, um, what was it like growing up where you grew up? How was your childhood? Um, did you did you feel different than the people that you were living next to or around? It's funny. I laugh at that question um, because mm -hmm. real and I've I've pondered this in my writings in my life. How do we know what we look like when we're always looking out? And what I grew up seeing was a white world. I grew up in Hamilton, New Jersey, predominantly an Italian town. And I, I jokingly say that I, it was not until I moved to New York at the age of 19 that I realized that I was not Italian, uh, that I didn't look like everyone else in town. Um, and and, and I, that's why I jokingly say so, because I did hear the N-word. I did... Uh, learn many disparaging names for for blacks i heard spooks i heard many you know these things were were said i in order to continue with the way i like to live i i mean i grew up in a wonderland i grew up in a magical dream world and in order for that to happen a lot of that stuff that was happening around me that was happening involving me i had to let um wash off me I couldn't hold on to it. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, I would be filled with rage. Uh, and yeah, that that's... So did I see it? Some of it I saw. Some of it I didn't see. I was... I mean, my I talked to my brother and my sister about that. 
there was a lot that I didn't see that was going on because I had rose-colored gl- goggles on. I, I was living in a, mm. in a very fantasy world. I was, you know, it was all Disney to me, and I didn't see a lot of the stuff that was going on, and I was protected from it because um, even to this day, my family is like, man, Bill's another, he's another guy. He's, he's like a complete innocent because he just doesn't see it. And some of it I do see and some of it I choose not to see. Uh, and from that, that experience, I now have gained a voice in which I could speak about the experience. Some of the things I chose not to see, some of the things I, I didn't let affect me then that affects me now. And I have three children that I, I can't shelter from the world, but I, I want to prepare them for the world. And not the world that I grew up in, but the world that they are living in. And, and I think that's the, that's the part that fascinates me is that, you know, until you, <laughs> there's lots that you can gloss over for self-preservation. There's lots of things you can adapt to because it's just you, but it fundamentally changes you when you have children. Yeah. Yes, you, it does. You find yourself in a different place <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that whether it's a genetic thing or some sort of biological need, but the, the protection kind of gene comes mm-hmm. to the fore. Why do you, why right. do you think that is? Because I find it fascinating that the, the choices that you've made in terms of career have so much to do about, um, about stripping things down and communicating in, um, in various ways. I also agree with that. I believe that my path as an artist, as a performer, is has been about finding my voice, as finding a way of communicating. Uh, even as with the clown, my clown is, uh, I use a lot of physical gestures. I don't speak much as a clown, and I do some, but it's about finding another way of communicating. And the clown essentially communicates the word of the people, uh, in uh, traditionally, the clown was the, the the jester, the fool, the one who could actually talk back to kings and leaders and emperors, and say what the people are feeling, and uh, address some of the concerns. So, in that, I the clown, the fool, the jester speaks through me, even through my poetry, even through um, too much to live for. That comes from the role of the clown of addressing what is what is going on and saying, Hey, the emperor is, is wearing no clothes. Well, I want, I want to, I want to think about that a little bit. Um, speaking truth to power. How tall are you? I am six foot four inches tall. Okay. You are doing something with your, your physical art that takes what stereotypes and prejudices would say could be a threatening persona. And when you watch your clown, it is all about gentleness. It is all about communicating the, the humanity and the interpersonal kind of warmth. And I watch your face and I watch the way that you, you move. And I wonder how important is that for you to show that side of you because of the way people might react just to see somebody who is large, big, oh, kind of, um, what's the, what's the word larger than life sometimes. Uh, and I have heard that and I've used, heard that used against me as well, that I'm larger than life. 
And at times I am larger in life. Uh, I do have a spirit that's loving. Uh, and But that spirit is fully rounded. So I had to deal with my rage and my anger um, mm-hmm. many decades ago that I started, I realized that I didn't have to shut it aside, but I had to walk in harmony with that that rage and that anger and that frustration uh, in order to be the loving person that I want to be. I also realized that I didn't have to diminish myself. Even though I am six foot four, 250 pounds, I don't have to diminish who I am to be fully who I am. And that has taken, that's a, a practice. It has taken a lot to learn how to do that. A lot of that growing that's and an, learning. Yep, go ahead. That's an art. I mean, you keep, uh, that's what fascinates me about you is that when I listen, when I look at you and I see the things that you've done. So if you're, if you're working in the stunt world, you are literally using your body for effect. When you become a part of different clown cultures that are vastly different, whether it's Ringling Brothers or Cirque du Soleil, you're, you're molding your physicality to their kind of needs. And then on top of that, you're developing a deeper kind of uh, literary voice. I find it fascinating. Most people pick one, physical performer, life of words. How come you're bouncing around to so many different types of art and, and, and what does that say about your, what you have the off, offer of the world in terms of your point of view? This also was a, professionally was a big question of, because uh, at one point I had a professional coach who was telling me I do too much and I was, I was taken aback, like how do I focus what I do when I realized that the one thing I needed to do was me. I needed to be me and I needed to communicate mm-hmm. that. So everything, every aspect of what I do is a communication of who I am uh, and that who I am. So each of us, we, every one of us does that. There are, you, know, we, you don't stop being a parent when you go to your corporate job. You don't stop. You know, mm-hmm. Each of those things has their place and you can do them well. Uh, you can volunteer to do something uh, on weekends and have your nine to five job during the week and in the evenings, do the other things that you do, whether it's play softball or or join the bowling league. And it doesn't diminish who you are. It actually enhances who you are. And my art is is an amplification. If uh, I'm very spiritual, and if I see the spirit, the light of God flowing through me, and I am a prism, that the arts that the art that I represent is that light prismatically refracted in the world. So you'll see a rainbow um, that comes out of that prism. And that is the same pure light of God, except it shows up as a stuntman. It shows up as a poet. It shows up as a motivational speaker. It shows up as a circus coach. It shows up as an acrobat um, in, in those different ways. But that's the same pure light. But boy, isn't that, isn't that what we need? <laughs> I mean, it, the... What's happening now in the world where we've reached this tipping point where it's no longer enough to, to passively try to get by, to try to survive, um, you know, we have to thrive. We have to find ways of fixing these things. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to have a broader collection of tools. Sometimes you do need to deliver a speech. Yes. <laughs> you need to use your body. 
you know, and I, and I think I, and I, I categorically disagree with your, uh, your, your coach. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with, with the way that you're, the way that you're looking at this for, for different issues, for different times. Um, we need that diversity of, of right. skills. I mean, we need diversity of thought. So what drew you to being a clown? Because it's a serious uh, endeavor. <laughs> it wasn't very serious when I did it. I had gone to New York to study theater because musical theater. I'd gone to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, AMDA, in New York City, just to, be, to do musical mm -hmm. theater. And I struggled. I didn't see myself as being very good at it. Now, I talked to many of my friends and my classmates who, think, who thought that I was brilliant, but I didn't see that. And what took me away from that was I was just – I felt like a failure. I was going to auditions. I was not getting the work. And a buddy of mine asked me to go, to him, go with him to the audition for Ringling Brothers Clown College. So I went. And I had such a fun time. The, and the director of Clown College invited me to, to, to submit an application. I said, I, I'm really not interested. I'm going to do musical theater. Uh, I wound up getting in in 1987 and chose not to go because I wanted to do something else with my life, which was be a, a, an oceanfront lifeguard in Staten Island. Uh, and then in 1988, <laughs> I decided I would go to Clown College as a distraction. And 30 years later, I'm still doing circus. 30-something years later, I'm still doing circus. What, what draws you time and again back to, to that world? What does it bring to you, let alone what it brings to everyone else, but what does it bring to you that is fulfilling? There is a magic in conjuring, in using the body. So in the circus, in the circus world, you get to use your body to exemplify a story. You can also use your words and you can also use music. So you have multiple elements in which to express and you can express anything. I've used circus work to express uh, political dissent. I've used circus work to just uh, create mirth and, and frivolity. I have used uh, the circus work. I was an ambassador uh, for the U.S. State Department to Turkmenistan and used circus work to um, bridge international borders. Uh, so it's that's what what draws me back to circus time and time again. And I keep trying to run away, but it keeps pulling me back in. Mm. Well, that's the, the dream of joining the circus and the idea that it is a universal language. What did you, what did you find in Turkmenistan? I mean, that's, that's, if you spun the world, you're almost, you're almost going, you know, exactly halfway around the world. It's a completely different culture. Uh, and yet you must have known that there's a there's this universal connection. Yes, but I didn't know what that was, and having and traveling around the world. Mm. So, what did I find in Turkmenistan? Traveling around the world, when I travel, what I do the first thing I do is I observe. I try to see what cultures, what customs are in that culture, what uh, how people communicate in that culture, and it was the first time I'd ever gone to a country where I spoke not a lick of the language. I did not speak any Turkmen. Mm -hmm. I did have some Russian that I could use to communicate, and the Russians had occupied Turkmenistan for uh, quite a bit of time, so their mm -hmm. folks could speak Russian. But what I found that unified us 
is that circus in America and circus in Turkmenistan was founded on the same principles. It was based on equestrian shows. So the size of the ring is the same as it is in the United States. It was the size of a, for a horse to run at a gallop um, and comfortably so uh, around the ring. And that unifying thing and sharing that with the folks in Turkmenistan because they are rich in their equestrian culture, uh, their understanding that I knew of that was hmm. they just opened the doors and went, wow, okay, you know your history. And it, was, it allowed me to share what I could bring from America to them. And then I opened the door to sh- for them to share what they, could, what they had to offer to me from Turkmenistan. It also turned out that the director of the circus school at the time when we went to visit was a former stuntman. So we had that connection and wow. and he sh- he showed me his stunt reel and he was teaching acrobatics and we compared our acrobatic techniques and he liked where I was coming from to work to get them on the same page because we didn't have the same language. So we had to create a physical language and he really enjoyed how I um had made an interpretive physical language for both for all of us to work with, uh, so that opened many doors. I'm I'm fascinated by by your methodology because it seems to me that you're you're processing these kind of you know human Venn diagrams of you know how do I connect with this person how do I connect with that audience how do I connect with this group and where you find a piece of yourself that resonates you you throw the energy behind that and build from it, from a, from an area of commonality. So how do you do, th- why, why do you think there's a group of people who have both uh, found interest in the circus and in stunt work? I, well, <laughs> I know that it was the circus that got me into the stunt world. And for that person, mm-hmm. it was the stunt world that got him into circus uh, so, uh, <laughs> what is, what is the unifying thing? I'm not sure. I think it's the, the, the use of the physical as an expression and as a powerful tool for, um, in the stunt world, you're doing things with your body that when filmed, when recorded seems almost impossible. You can get shot and mm. you can die. You can fall from high places. You can get hit by a car. There are so many different things you can do that you don't do in the real world, and yet you can create these illusions that are larger than self, uh, using mm. uh, your brains and your body. And I think that that's, there's something really important to that. In the circus, there isn't an illusion. You are actually doing things that the audience, for the most part, looks at as superhuman, but really is masterful training and skill at use of the physical form. Uh, getting your body to flip through the air is is just practice and practice technique. That that I think is um, that's kind of a, a a bit of wisdom because you know the to do something and have it look simple takes a lot of work. <laughs> and so when you when when you think about creating magic, uh, whether it's in the moment in a circus or on a stage or whether it's through that collaborative effort of filmmaking. Um, there's, there's something there about practice and about dedication. Is that, um, is that type of dedication something that you think is innate in, in you 
or is it something that you that you had to really kind of push yourself for? I had to push myself. <laughs> it is not innate. And mm-hmm. I will tell you that the my approach to it in the beginning was unhealthy mentally. I mm-hmm. I get a little choked up here. Because I honor the me who stepped into that world uh, feeling less than. Mm -hmm. Doing what I did was about uh, proving myself, pushing myself past uh, limits, pushing myself past fears, pushing myself to, uh, in a a humble way, to be better than uh, anyone else. And, and not as a, you know, I didn't see myself as standing on a podium to do these things, but to be able to do the flips that mm-hmm. I did, I, I, it was a dare for me to prove the fee- my doubters wrong, to prove, you know, the coach who said, no, nah, you're not going to be able to do that. You're too big and you're too limber and you're, or you're too, uh, so too uh, um, tight uh, that you won't ever get that. And I went, no, no, you don't understand who I am. I'm going to get that. Now, I did those things. I didn't believe in myself. I did not believe in myself. And even after accomplishing things, I can look back at videos and go, whoa, did I really do that? Because <laughs> there was a disbelief of that I could actually accomplish those things. And the doing them was proof that I could, but I still didn't believe it. Well, sure. I mean, it's it's funny because if, if you had a friend who did those things, you'd be proud as hell for that friend. It's, just, that it's a lot harder to be proud for yourself. Mm-hmm. That is correct. <laughs> it, it, I always tell people that if you, if you really want to know, you know, how much you've accomplished, just imagine it happened to someone else. Um, right. <laughs> and you're much more generous. <laughs> yes, that is correct. It, it makes it makes me laugh because you know I'm a I'm you know rapidly shrinking man. So I probably was <laughs> five nine or something like that at one point. Now I'm five eight, and the kids are taller than me. And uh, so you know I always wanted to be a little bit taller. And people that are very tall want to be a little bit shorter and people in the middle just are unhappy because they're average. It doesn't matter. Um, you're, you're always dealing with people's perceptions of um, what you think they think about you. You probably find out later that people really don't think about you that much. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me that uh, they're mostly thinking about themselves. Uh, yes. <laughs> but it seems to me that what you're doing is connecting. You have this need to communicate. And to to play in the humanity and the, the as you said the kindness of people. What drove you to that? Why is kindness so important? Well, you know what I, I would. There was I had a <laughs> I had a birthday. I was I'm born in August, and August 25th for anybody who wants to send me a birthday present. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I had a birthday one summer, and August birthdays were terrible. It was two weeks before school started. So everyone is either taking that last mm-hmm. vacation. No one would ever come to my birthday parties, and and that I so that gave me this diminished sense of self as well. That and, and when I say no one, it would mm-hmm. be some family members who felt obligated to show up because they knew that I wouldn't have any friends. But none of my friends ever showed. I think I had one year where two friends showed up, and they showed up by accident because they wanted to swim in our pool. Uh, <laughs> uh, so. From that, and 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 that may sound sad, and it was. I really think that the human, the, the human aspect of each of us, needs to be celebrated. I we are 
divinely perfect. And that doesn't mean we're perfect in what we do, but we're perfect in who we are. Uh, and for whatever mm -hmm. task that is. And to find the moments where we can celebrate ourselves is important. And what I have decided that I want to do is open up that space that we celebrate our achievements, we celebrate our accomplishments, we celebrate ourselves whenever we get a chance to. And if that means just a moment of hearing music and dancing, what I what I want to bring about is this idea that we can celebrate more. We can always celebrate mm. a little bit more. Well, okay. So I have two, I have two pieces that I think you, you are, you are hitting on that are really important. One is something that annoys me. Um, when people say, I don't see color, I don't see race. Of course, of so course no black person ever. Everyone sees exactly right. <laughs> um, the, the the difference I think is to, is to celebrate people's diversity to to acknowledge that we have a huge amount of shared identity and experience etc. But also to say look at the wonder of that. And when you were in Turkmenistan, um, you know, and you see that there are things that we have in common, it's it's amazing. But it also gives you freedom to wonder at the things that are different. And I had the same experience in China, in um, Xi'an, China, where I I watched a a little kid playing with a, what turned out to be a Tonka truck of all things, um, mm -hmm. in the street on a big pile of dirt. And he played just like a kid in New Jersey. Right. And you watch that and you realize, well, these are, these are universals. So the celebration of the individual, of the contributions and the engagement, what do we need to do now? I, I find it, you know, in the, the second piece of that, that I, that I kind of want to throw your way is that Someone said that if you can't celebrate the black experience, you have a lot of work to be done. And I was listening to that and I thought, who has a problem celebrating the black experience? Why should I care and have a problem with celebrating the black experience any different than I would celebrate anyone else's experience? Celebrating something doesn't take anything away from me. So what is that mindset? What is your experience with that? How do you get past that? Because you have such a positive attitude. I imagine you've, you've bounced up against this thing a bunch of times. Oh, I have. <laughs> this is not um, – uh, uh, it's not from not experiencing. It is from having experienced it. Mm -hmm. So what is that? You know, celebrating the black experience. What The first thing that came to mind is in Hamilton, July 16th, uh, the Mount Carmel Festival there. And that mm -hmm. was, that's, I'm not Roman Catholic, but that is part of my celebration. Mm -hmm. That is something, you know, I just, sure. the, 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 the parts of that and, and for, we just had Juneteenth and that is a celebration mm -hmm. that's open to all. And it's because it's about emancipation and every one of us as a culture and, and whatever cultures of the world has had to deal with emancipation. And how do we embrace and how do we accept uh, others into our celebrations and invite others into our celebrations is really important. Mm. Uh, and they, there's the idea that there isn't reverse racism. What uh, The whole idea behind what black is, black is inclusion. It is in pigment, the inclusion of all colors that creates black. Mm -hmm. And so when I say that I'm a black man, it's because I have chosen, I don't, I, I mean, otherwise I would have to say I'm from New Jersey. Um, I have, I, mm -hmm. I'm not African American because I've never been to Africa. 
And when I, when there was a, a great read, I can't even remember who wrote it, but was saying about the choice to be black is anyone can choose to be black when they decide they're going to include all in who they are. And mm-hmm. I invite people, I've said to many people, I said, yeah, you're black. And they'll say, no, 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 I'm not. I'm this and that and the other thing. I said, no, you, I'm inviting you into the black world because of mm-hmm. what I see in you. Uh, how do we get others to celebrate is we, when we stop making our celebrations exclusive, when we make them inclusive. And that has nothing to do with racism. It has to, and it, some of it is provincialism, some of it is regionalism, regionalism, is when we start to include people and say, come on in. Uh, when we, like when I sit down and have a conversation with someone who I know is a racist, who is a bigot, and I don't mm-hmm. make the first statement of judgment to them, I just simply say, hey, and I ask the question of their stance or their position on something, and don't judge the response, but listen. That then gives them uh, a sense of respect and a sense of honor. And when you're respected and you're honored, you're not living in fear. And that opens them to say, hey, wait a minute. I can see William in a different light. And maybe that bigotry softens a little bit or maybe that racism softens a little bit with just me. And hopefully that softens when they look at the next person. I, I, I love the idea of, of, of softening that. You know, the, the shell that people put up around to create an other that protects them from whatever they're afraid of, to soften that shell, to make it permeable so something can get in is, mm-hmm. I mean, so when I, when I taught uh, 101 writing at Rutgers in Camden, about half the class were um, local kids of color. And the other half were kids from, you know, other towns who were Caucasian or Asian, whatever other nationalities. And we had a little bit of a free reign to pick what book we wanted them to study. So I chose Beloved by Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. And I was told categorically by the head of the English department that it was too difficult. And I said, it's not. It's, you know, you can read it at a bunch of different levels, but let's keep it as an amazing story. And we'll see how far we go. Because I knew there were going to be women in there of color who weren't aware of this level of art by another black woman. But I also knew there were going to be a lot of young white guys who were going to get exposed to something they probably are never going to get if they become an engineer or an accountant or whatever it is. And they love the book, but I think they love the idea that they were sharing something that was that was so different. And so... I, I come back to you with the ability to to build bridges because I think there's something in you growing up in that town. You know, I think I had said on another uh, episode of this podcast that my family grew up uh, in South Philly and they were on the border of the of the Jewish and the Italian neighborhood. So I thought that you know bagels and locks were Italian. I, I mean, context the you know store down the street sold them and prosciutto. So what do I know? Right. Um, and it is contextual. These are the people that you grow up with. So, so you, you know, you, you like what you, what you're, what is familiar, but you've done something different. It seems like you've made a piece of your life's work. Part of your philosophy um, is really to connect. And it those is. connections are far there. There, there are some, you're making some jumps. You are, these are not simple, you know, 
tangential connections. You were really looking at connecting people who normally wouldn't be connected. Why? That is the key. Uh, that is the key to our survival as a human race. There's only one race, and that's the human race. And if we, we are the particles that make up the body of God, we are, it is necessary for us to understand our connectedness, our connections, in order for us to find the thing that we're all seeking, and that's joy. Uh, and I, and, I, and I, maybe I'm mm-hmm. jumping by saying that we're all seeking joy, but joy is, uh, it is the, the, it is truth. Joy is love. Joy is, uh, is God. And why can, why not connect? If we can be strength, stronger together, then why are we separate? Uh, and we we know that we are stronger together. We have unions that make us stronger together. We get married to make us stronger together. We are in families that make us stronger together in communities. And why are we fighting for what we? Why aren't we fighting for what we want? Why are we fighting to get what we don't want? And I <laughs> I have found that that I have a voice that is. That and the the crazy part about this is this is what I would like, um, but I don't want to force it on anyone. I want you to welcome, walk, well, openly welcome the idea of walking in to this connection, um, not because you were told or threatened or or shamed into it, because when you resonate at that level of just miracle readiness, that it's something you want and you want more of. Miracle readiness. I mean, I'm going to remember that. Um, I have two more questions and they may seem simple, but I think they're, they're tough ones. You have a pandemic that has 25% unemployment. You have people not watching sports. You have just now movie production barely starting up, probably going to shut down again based on what's happening in California. You have a lack of travel. You have a captive audience. At the same time that outrage has reached a fever pitch when um, you look at an epic divide, maybe even a generational or, or societal divide. Um, and I, the two questions are, so what and now what? So, so what, <laughs> William? So what? So what? That all this is happening. <laughs> So what and now what? So what are you going to so do? So what? So what? Yeah. What do we? What I see as I see a beautiful reset. We have the ability to reset. We reshape everything that we know. We reshape the the work week. We reshape how communities connect. We reshape how art is created. We reshape um, just the the way we formulate things. And instead of a revolution. This is prime time for an evolution. Because I see a revolution, you know, it's a big circle. We're going to keep coming back to the same point. We are back to the 1960s. We're back to 1918. We've revolved right around that circle again. This is a time for us to evolve, to break out of that cycle, and to grow, to transform, and to come together in a way that's healthy. And for we we can see the problems. There's a big divide in, in ethnic diversity and inclusion. In, on all levels, boards of directors, 
let's see a, a more community-based look of those boards of directors. Let's see people of color on boards of directors. Mm-hmm. Let's see people of color in management positions. Let's see people of color um, op- not just opening businesses and being able to to uh, move forward with their entrepreneurial um, designs, but let's enhance that. Let's open mm-hmm. up spaces so we're teaching entrepreneurship to younger our younger generation uh, so that we're helping them to become to step into these places of leadership uh, to so that they're sitting on these boards let's invite some of our younger folks onto our boards of directors and our nonprofit organizations and hear their voices it's a time that we can reshape and evolve as a people as a community and uh, as a as a world and I'm sorry I, for I preaching do, here, but <laughs> no 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 I loved it no it was, it was amazing I um you, you, Anthony, who is uh, the producer of the show, is is probably laughing because you danced right around something that I've been bouncing around in my head for probably the last 10 years, which is um, people keep asking why you don't see the revolution. And it's because you're inside of it. I don't feel the earth turning. I don't feel the galaxy spiraling. I'm in it. And so in a lot of ways, the way I view it is an evolution revolution. It's a thousand tiny turns that we all do to drive this thing forward. And I think you're right. I think that the idea of it being an evolution so that we don't come back to another, you know, uh, point where we're still dealing with the same frustrating kind of myopic views of the world means that we have to break a cycle. And so breaking the cycle after, so what now, what after, so what now, what, well, yeah, there's some, there's some learning that's going to be need that needs to happen. One of the things, uh, so I just read of a, a, a friend of mine who was a copy editor, and she, mm-hmm. naturally, uh, when because as a writer, you send your stuff to an editor, the editor comes back and they they have chopped it up and done everything, mm-hmm. put commas and periods, and what she realized is that the standards mm-hmm. for copy editing are based on this Oxford English style of writing, which is mm-hmm. a, is one style, and there are others. That are out there, and mm-hmm. to be able to find new ways of interpreting voices that doesn't just go through Oxford England, uh, that there are new ways of hearing other voices. Uh, now what? Now what is honoring that we come from different places? So it's funny. I have I have noticed that there is a um, a shift in language that clauses are being strung together in a rhythm, that there's a rhetoric and a pacing of things, that people are changing the way they communicate. And whether it's more of a staccato, whether it's because of you know hip hop and the way that we're using a rhythm that is different than what we were taught. And I think it has to do with the ubiquity of communications tools. We're now communicating directly with each other. And it's this, you know, there's a woman who wrote a, um, a paper called uh, Hand-Eye Brain, Janet Emig. And she says that the as you write, your brain sees something and it stores it. And then it teaches your mind what your message is. And then it makes your hand move again. And the hand, the eye, and the brain do that. But it's the same thing with talking too. And I find it fascinating that as you're writing a book or you're developing uh, you know, an, an evolving style in poetry, 
that the goal here is to communicate to people as they want to be communicated to. And it mm -hmm. starts with listening to them, paying right. attention to the rhythms of how they respond. If kids have a shorter attention span or they want to see something different or they're open to different cultures or experiences, meme culture, are we open to that? And you're, you were born in 68? 66. In around that area, 69? 66? Okay. 60. So we're generation X. We, 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 we sit in this space between. We are the bridge between the baby boomers and the millennials. This is what I want to ask you. In that space where we get the, the benefit and the curse of being neither of these larger groups of, you know, of, of generations, what's our role? What's are our we role? the people that, that what's our role as, as people in our fifties in, you know, if you want to know what you were doing in the sixties, what are you doing now? It's the same thing. You would have been doing this, you know, you would have been engaged or not engaged. You would have been involved or not involved. What's our role at this stage with the experience that we have. And yet maybe not the, the facility with digital tools, um, maybe a, a broader experience or maybe a more diverse experience than baby boomers, you know, and, and yet not as, uh, as, as kind of, uh, uh, lacking in experiences as millennials. So what role do you play in all of this? Well, you, I think you said it. For me, I, I feel that the role that I play is, is that bridge, is the bridge between the cultures or between the generations. Um, that I, my role is the storyteller. My role takes my children's stories and passes them up back to their ancestors and their ancestor stories down to my children. And and I, I, my role is in sitting and listening in other cultures to bring the stories of my culture into theirs and then to listen to their stories and bring them back. And so it's about bridging a lot of things from cultures to generations to ideologies, uh, communities, in, in, in the spoken word, in the written word, in the physical uh, performing world. It's about telling the stories that inform, that entertain, that inspire, that encourage, um, and that, uh, yeah, that, that are necessary. Yeah. William, I could talk to you for, for another couple of hours. Um, but I, but I want to, I want to end on this. Tell me a simple story from your family that resonates. It's the one that when you think of your grandparents or you think of your parents that you say, well, this isn't, this is an easy one. You know, this is the one that, that gives you a feel for what these people were like. So I, in my teens, my grandfather was living in Camden, New Jersey, and he was not able to drive any longer. And I would go pick him up on weekends while I was in college and I'd bring him back to Hamilton and we'd drive around and he would, we'd go through Sicklerville and Berlin and Tansboro and Atco and, and do all these different drives. And I remember one time driving him home and I would normally take the same way back. And he said, let's go down this road. And I forget what road it was, but we turned down the road and he kept making all these different turns. And asking me to turn down different roads, and I was at each time I had to recalculate and figure out how I was going to get to Camden from there. 
And uh, he, he said, uh, yeah, I used to drive all these roads. And he said, now, you're going to go out in the world, and you're always going to have to get home. Never go home the same way. Keep expanding your world. Keep finding new ways to get home. And that's one I live by. That is perfect. Um, I'm going to keep that close to my heart. Um, I think that is a piece of philosophy that I'm going to remember for a very long time. And I hope everybody else does too. Um, William, this has been a enormous pleasure. It is, uh, it is fortunate <laughs> that I got a chance to, to talk with yeah. William fortune. Uh, I hope everybody else enjoyed this conversation. And, um, if we, if there's an opportunity to, uh, to talk again, whether it's, uh, the, the new book that's coming out or another piece of art that you're creating, I would be delighted to sit down and talk with you in any capacity. Thank you I so much. I would be glad to talk to you and thank you so much for having me on here. Thank you very much for th this invitation and a, a chance to uh, share my words with folks and share my stories. Thank you very much, Carmen. That oh, was wonderful. Thank you. Um, so that's all the time we have. Uh, make sure that you uh, you tune into the next edition of the Allies podcast. Uh, if you have any feedback for William or myself, please uh, let us know, uh, either on the Facebook page or on our website. And uh, if you like this, share it. We want other people to hear. And if there's anybody else you think we should be talking to, we'd be happy to talk to them as well. So that's all from me. I'm Carmen Farino, and thanks for listening to the Allies podcast. Mm -hmm.